And we are continuing in our study in First Peter, and uh, I trust this has been a blessing. It has been to me, it's been a challenge and a blessing. In First Peter 2, we're going to be studying verses 21 through 25, but we'll begin reading in verse 18 to set the context here. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, and not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Father, we thank you that you are the shepherd, that you are the good shepherd, that your son Jesus is the good shepherd. Father, we pray that as we study this example of Jesus, that you would make us more like him, that your spirit would work through us, God, to desire to follow and to begin to follow his example for your glory in Jesus' name. Well, in this section of Peter's letter, he's teaching us about what God's will is for our life love, and holiness. And we're learning what that looks like in the biggest areas, the the most common and the the largest looming areas of our life. And anyone who says, well, the Bible's not really relevant to our life, hasn't really read it, have they? (laughs) It's incredibly relevant. It's very relevant to our life. Every moment, it's, it's relevant as we're working through the most common relationships, the most common responsibilities that we have for those around us, to those around us. And we started with government, human institutions that are set up to institute and continue an orderly life. We we looked at what holiness looks like there with government. It looks like submission. It looks like doing good and being holy and beginning with a basic responsibility just to obey the laws of the government. And unless we're told to directly contradict scriptures, that's what we do. We live in submission to the authority that God has placed over us in the government. But as we live that way in God's will, we learn that it's part of God's will by our holiness to put to silence those who speak ignorance out of foolishness. We saw that the summary application in verse 17 was to honor everyone, right? Treat everyone with dignity, the dignity that is afforded them because they're made in the image of God, including those in government and when they have terrible ideas about laws and policies. We honor everyone. We love our brothers and sisters, and we fear God. That was our summary of those verses. Then we move from government into the workplace, and what does holiness look like at work? 
And again, it's no surprise. It was, again, be subject to or submit to our boss. Again, God has installed the authority that we have at work over us, not by people who are better than us or are more important than us. It's just part of the order that God provides at work. There's someone that's got to be in charge. And we ultimately, we know that God is the one who is totally in charge, but at a human level, He uses humans somehow for, for His own purposes, and so we submit to them. And so there are government leaders, there are work leaders, and our job is to submit. And we saw that there are no exception clauses and no exemptions when they're bad leaders or if they treat us badly or they make bad decisions. We do our best work for the glory of God, and we submit to His authority and the authorities placed over us. But we know that that's not always going to be easy, don't we? This this is not going to be something that's just smooth sailing. If we're striving to live those holy lives and, and looking like what God has in mind for us, that's not going to be easy. And so, we saw how Peter began to expand his view of suffering for us, not just at in the government and not just for at work, but in all areas, in all ways when we're suffering, anywhere, anytime, if you're suffering for the good that you're doing, for the holiness, the holy life that you're living, he says, here's how to suffer in a way that's gracious, that's beautiful and commendable by God. Do you remember what those three conditions were? It's from our text. He said, you mindful of God. If you're mindful of God, that's part of this gracious suffering If you're enduring the sorrows and the pain, you're not giving up and and you're not throwing in the towel. We're we're mindful of God, we're enduring, and while it's unjust. Remember, we can't bring it on ourselves because of a bad attitude or because of bad work that we do. It has to be for holiness. Those kinds of suffering, when we're mindful of God, when we're enduring, and when it's unjust, that's a gracious thing to God. And then he struck us with a profound statement that kind of rips us out of any kind of complacency, any kind of, I don't know if this really applies, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with this, why is any of this important? He says, because this is why we've been called, what we've been called to, to suffer like this. Now, we'll look at that more closely in a minute, but as a good teacher, Peter gives us a good example. He, he gives us an example of what this looks like, an example for us to follow, and it's not just a good example, he gives us the highest example. He gives us the example of Jesus, the only one who has ever done all of this perfectly. So let's begin with number one in our notes. There are three stages to this example. Peter first, in verse 21, gives us Jesus' example that's exhorted to us. Jesus' example is exhorted to us in verse 21. Peter says, look to this, look to Jesus. If we want to know what God wants from our life as we suffer, look how He did it. (laughs) <laughs> when he came here as fully man and fully God. Let, let's see what Jesus did, how he lived it. You remember as we studied the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to Mark, we learned that Jesus repeatedly told his disciples, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to suffer. We're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be humiliated. I'm going to be rejected and beaten and killed. And then I'm going to rise. And Jesus said, that's all necessary, right? I have to do all of that. Now we learned it was partly necessary because God had prophesied it. He said, this will happen, this is going to happen. And it was partly necessary because that was part of the Father's plan for Jesus to save us. That's how He saved us, by His suffering, His death, and His resurrection. But Peter here teaches us another reason why Jesus had to suffer. Verse 21, he says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. (laughs) 
leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. That's why Jesus had to suffer, because we're going to suffer, and we're going to follow in His steps. Now, why would it be important to know how to suffer? Because He says, to this we have been called. This is what's going to happen to us. Did you, raise your hand if you, if you were, when somebody shared the gospel with you, raise your hand if you were told, by the way, when you have uh, received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're going to suffer. <laughs> was anybody told that? When was the last time you told that to someone when you were witnessing of Christ? Uh, come to the Lord and Savior, uh, your life will get harder. <laughs> Not necessarily harder. Our life gets harder but it becomes easier to handle a harder life, really. That's what Jesus is, is going to be teaching us. That's what we learn from the Scriptures. Our life is going to suffer, but it gets easier to handle the greater suffering because there's a purpose. Uh, turn back to Mark chapter 8, if you will, just for a minute. And I want us just to see this again, be reminded of Jesus' own words uh, about how clearly He made it, that when we follow Him, we're following Him into suffering, in Mark chapter 8, in verse 31, it's, it's just after Peter has made the confession of Jesus. He says, you are the Christ, in verse 29. Jesus said, don't tell anybody yet, because they're not going to understand. But Mark 8, verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter, uh, Peter <laughs> and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to, with, to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, as we worked through that passage before, we, we saw that a lot of that came from Isaiah 53, that, that God had foretold that the Messiah would suffer in that way. And we have many other verses that are more specific about exactly everything that Jesus was going to endure, there was going to be, God was going to crush him. There was going to be anguish. There was going to be sorrow. But it was God's plan for Jesus to endure. And Jesus tells us here that if you're going to follow me, it's going to be the same for you. You, you take up the cross and follow. So when Jesus was called to suffer, he made it clear that we also are going to deny ourselves to follow Him. We're going to have to take up a cross and follow Him as well. And we remember that bearing the cross is, is not just dealing with a hardship in our life. It's, it's not a specific difficulty, uh, everyday life or trouble. It's specifically identifying with death, the death of our Savior, the death to ourselves, the death to sin. It's a complete denial of self-preservation so that we're willing to die for our Lord if He calls us to that. And in the meantime, we live for Him with a death sentence on us in the eyes of the world. People always talking about death, right? 
Jesus died, and Jesus died, and you die, and we die, and everybody dies, and people are all talking about death. (laughs) But there's life in that death. And so we follow Jesus. And he made it clear here that we're called to suffer. And and if we don't know that that's part of the call, that's, (laughs) that's not Jesus' fault, is it? Because he made it clear. But the reward, he says, is the saving of our soul for eternity, right? The reward is, yeah, it's going to be tough here. It's going to be some suffering here on this short life compared to eternity. But in eternity, it's a joy, and, 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 and we can't even express the joy and the glory that's in heaven. There's a coming inheritance and glory that is being guarded for us where there will never be any more suffering or tears or sin. So it's either suffer now for a little while and then be glory in glory with God forever, or it's try to get what you can and do what you want now, because forever it'll be suffering. So it's an exchange. But as Jesus suffered, because we're called to suffer, He set the standard, the perfect standard for what it looks like to suffer. I want to show you in these verses what this looks like. Peter said that there were three conditions, remember, being uh, that when it's gracious to God, when we're suffering, when we're mindful of God, when we're enduring, and when we're unjustly suffering, Peter lays those out for us in Jesus in these verses. And we're going to unpack them in a minute, but just, just look at verse 22. Um, was it unjust when Jesus suffered? Well, Peter says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. <laughs> All that Jesus did was good and holy and love and truth, and he suffered tremendously. Was he mindful of God? Verse 23, he did not revile when reviled or threatened, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He went through it all. He was completely mindful of God, completely trusted God, and and he endured, verse 24, all the way to the tree, all the way to the cross. He endured. Jesus is the perfect example that Peter is exhorting us to. Now, I don't want to take anything away from any of the suffering that we go through, that we endure. I don't intend to demean it or downplay it, but the amount and the kind of suffering that Jesus endured was more than any human being will ever be called to endure. He was tortured. He was humiliated. He was crucified in the most painful method of execution man's ever come up with, right? Now, many others were, were, they they went through the same things. They've been tortured. Many other people have been crucified and killed and, and tortured by depraved human beings. But worse than the physical pain that Jesus endured was the the mental, emotional, and, and social, psychological, any kind of other inner turmoil and anguish and sorrow that you can imagine, the, the, the shock and the terror of taking on your sin and mine. He endured that on top of all of that physical suffering. His own father even turned away from him as he took our sin. He suffered his father's rejection after experiencing all of humanity's rejection. He really was crushed for our iniquities inside and outside. And so not only did Jesus set the perfect example of suffering, he did it while suffering more than any of us will ever have to suffer or, or more than we'll have to face. So we can't say to God, God, you don't understand, <laughs> right? God, you don't know what this is like. Jesus went through more and he did it better than we ever will. The words here are for encouragement for us. As we suffer, as we encourage difficult, I mean, encounter difficulty, <laughs> this is an encouragement for us. We're following Jesus' example. The word example here 
is, um, is, it's a word for talking about elementary school when, when the teachers wanted to teach the students to write the letters. The teacher would write the letter on the paper and then the student would copy the letter, just trace over the letter exactly the way the letter was. That's the way the student would learn to write the letter. And that's what we're doing with Jesus. He set the exam. He wrote the letters on the page and we just follow what he wrote. We're to be Xerox copies of Jesus during suffering. The ways that he acted, the ways that he spoke, the ways that he prayed and loved. This is encouraging because Isaiah 53, 3 says that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You know, a lot of times we, th- we, we think of Jesus as just this, you know, walking around smiling all the time, right? <laughs> but he was. He, he was a man of joy. There was a joy and a rejoicing and a, happy, uh, a happiness that couldn't be taken from him even in the middle of sorrow and grief and anguish. He lived with sorrow and grief. He lived with just a sadness and a darkness that was all around him, yet he served, he was faithful, he was always praying, he was always loving and serving and giving all that he is to us. He was the perfect example of suffering. Never making any excuses. Now, one thing I, I hope will be helpful to drive this home before we move on and, and that we remember this truth. Jesus' example is exhorted because we've been called to suffer and suffering in a way that's gracious to God because here's, here's, our, here's our issue. We have a tendency to measure our success with our relationship with God by how well things are going, don't we? Um, you know, things are going really well. Thanks, God. You know, I must be doing okay. You must be pretty happy with me, right? You know, th- I just, I got this raise at work, and, you know, the cars are working and running, and there's nothing falling apart. Everything's kind of going pretty well. Thank you, Lord. Everything's great, right? That, that's how we tend to measure how we're doing with the Lord. You know, the, the more, uh, the, the closer we are to God, the greater success we're going to have. The more ease we'll experience, the more comfort we'll have, things will go our way. But brother and sister, that's a lie from the pit of hell. If I can say it that strongly to us so that we can make sure that we remember that that is a lie. Nothing could be more discouraging for Christians than to think things are going badly because I've somehow messed up with God and now I've earned this stuff happening. That's discouraging to think that. As you're in the middle of trouble and as you're in the middle of suffering to think, well, I must have messed up and God doesn't love me now because now I'm getting punished because of something I did. Things get tough. Things get hard for us. We suffer because that's what God intends for us. To this we have been called, Peter says. We've been called to suffer following the example of the ultimate sufferer, Jesus. That, brother and sister, is the Christian life. (laughs) Enduring as Jesus endured. Don't fall for the lie that Christians are not going to suffer. That life is just going to get better and just be great. We all struggle. We all have sorrow. It's not whether we do. It's what we do during it. It's how we do during it. Much of the church has bought into the lie that life is supposed to be easy now and comfortable and great, right? I mean, this is just supposed to be a happy time. We need to learn how to eliminate what's uncomfortable, right? <laughs> when it, what stands in the way of our enjoyment, and that goes for people. How many times have you been told that if you've got people in your life who are negative, cut them out of your life, right? Somebody who's, you know, going through a lot and they're just, they're down just cut them out of your life. You, you deserve a happy life, so cut them out, right? That's hogwash. We're, the, we're to be here for one another, to help one another, right? 
How often do you hear from the world, you need to find your happy place. You need to, you need to do what makes you happy. Stay away from negativity. Can you imagine what would have happened if Jesus had done that? If he had stayed in his happy place <laughs> where, he was, where he's always glorified, always exalted, his praises are always sung, he never would have come here. He never would have come here for us. This is not his happy place. He left all of that behind. He came to save us in our negative place of sin and suffering, but he came with the joy of accomplishing his Father's will and serving us and loving us. He, he did it with joy and with love. Where did this idea come from? That Christians are supposed to have easy lives. It didn't come from Jesus, right? We, we just looked at what Jesus said. It doesn't come from the Scriptures, but listen, you know, I debated whether or not to take some time on this, but I really wanted to, I really want us to show us this um, because this is important. This lie has been around for a long time. If you follow God, everything gets easy, and if you're not following God, then things get hard. It's been around since Job, and Job was alive at the time of Abraham, around the time of Abraham. So if you will turn with me just for a minute back to Job chapter 4, I want us to see how, how long this has been around. And where this comes from, where this lie comes from, when I love God, life gets easier. <laughs> you remember Job had a lot of things. He had family. He had sons and daughters. He, had, um, he, he was a wealthy man. He had animals. He had um, everything that you think a man could want. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, very many servants. Uh, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the East, it says. He, he was at the top of the world. You remember that God allowed Satan to take everything away from him, including his health. He had only his wife who told him, curse God and die, Job. Why do you keep holding on to God, right? All this bad stuff has happened. Just curse God and die. Well, then his three friends come and they help him by sitting there for a week and they say nothing. They just, they just help him by just being there. But then they start talking, right? <laughs> um, Job has poured out his soul to them. He, he's in anguish. He's hurting. Eliphaz is the first to speak in Job chapter 4. In verse 1, then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, would you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, Job, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? (laughs) He says, okay, you were doing okay, but now all the bad stuff's happening to you. Where do you think this is coming from? Verse 7, remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? Eliphaz says, this doesn't happen to to good people. All this bad stuff, it just doesn't happen to good people. As I have seen, there we go, in my experience, right? This is, he's going to share his own experience. As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. You're going through all this, Job, because you did this. You brought this on yourself, Job. By the breath of God, they perish, and by the blast of his anger, they are consumed. Um, God's returning to you what you've done. You've done some bad, Job, and God found you out, and now, now God's bringing it back on you. You messed up with God, and now he's trying to get to you. He's showing you what's going on. This is Eliphaz. He's, he says, from my experience, this is what I've seen. Uh, look down at verse 17. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? 
Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Isn't this encouraging? <laughs> like if you're, if you're down in the dumps, aren't you just encouraged by this and just greatly uplifted by Eliphaz? I mean, yeah, Eliphaz here. Between morning and evening they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Um, wow. <laughs> Thank you for your encouragement, friend. Uh, I've brought all this on myself. I deserve all of this. God does this. This is, this is who God is. Look at chapter 5. Eliphaz still talking. He says, call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. He's talking about Job. You're going through this, Job, because this is what you get. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest, and he takes it even out of thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Job just doesn't come out of nowhere. It doesn't just happen to you. Suffering isn't just something that happens. You brought it on yourself. And he's trying to find every, every different way he can to, to tell Job and wake Job up. That's what Eliphaz is trying to do here. And then here we go again. Look at verse 8. This is Eliphaz. If it were me, right? If I were you, as for me, I would seek God. And to God would I commit my cause. Have you ever had somebody tell you that? You know, when you're suffering? Well, you should just turn to God. <laughs> I am turning to the Lord. <laughs> I am turning to the Lord. It, you know, if it were me, I would just go to God. I, to God, I would commit my cause. Why? Well, he does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn. He are lifted to safety. Here's how God is. Here's how powerful God is. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. That's how God is. Every time somebody's bad, he puts them down. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night, but he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty so the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. He says that every time, this is how God does it. Every time. If you're bad, you get bad. If you're good, you get good. Tell me if this doesn't sound like prosperity gospel, starting in verse 17. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue and shall not fear destruction when it comes. Right? You're invincible, Job. If you'll just trust God, you'll be invincible. At destruction and famine, you shall laugh and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace, and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. And you shall also know that your offspring shall be many, and your descendants as the grass of the earth. He, you know, you're going to live a long time. You're going to have kids. You're going to have wealth. Nothing's going to touch you. Everything's going to be fine and great and dandy because you trust the Lord. Right? That's what Eliphaz says. That's what Eliphaz is teaching. That's what many in the church teach, where they get on the radio or they get on TV and they fill our heads with this stuff. You know, you trust the Lord and everything's going to be great. You don't trust the Lord, it's all bad. So if you want to know what's going on, just look at your life and that'll tell you, right? 
Where did he get this stuff? Some of this stuff is true that God is powerful. He's all-powerful. Yes, amen, praise God. But where is he getting this stuff? Look back at chapter 4, and he's going to tell us in verses 12 through 16. It's not just his experience. He says, as I have seen in verse 8, and chapter 5, verse 6, if it were me, you know, here's, my, here's what I would do. Here's where he got it, chapter 4, verse 12. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be right in the uh, be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And then he continued on. Where did he get this? I had a vision. I had a dream at night. God told me this, Job. God told me you're suffering because you did something wrong and you deserve it. (laughs) It was a supernatural revelation, a, a, a vision, a dream that Eliphaz had, and it didn't come from the Lord, did it? It didn't come from the Lord because the Lord doesn't tell us, if you follow me, I'll make everything great, and everything will be wonderful, and it'll be an easy life. Believe, let's believe what Jesus says. (laughs) Let's hold on to what Jesus says because this is too easy to fall into this trap. You know, stuff's hard right now. Stuff's going on and I don't know how to get through it and I don't know what I'm supposed to do and I, I, I don't know where to turn. This guy keeps telling me if I would just turn to the Lord, if I would just, if I would just trust him, then things will get better (laughs) and it's not working. God says, this is my beloved son, Jesus, here. Listen to him, right? Listen to what he says about suffering in Mark 8. Well, back in 1 Peter, I I hope that was encouraging to you to see that this idea of suffering comes from yourself and your wrongs and and all the good stuff comes when you're righteous. Like we've got some kind of works-based salvation and, and, you know, God's good to you when you're good and he's bad to you when you're bad. That we've seen that that's not biblical well, it's biblical, but the Bible's telling us that that's wrong, right? That that's not how it is. In fact, when we are called to the Lord, Peter says here, for to this we have been called to follow the example of the ultimate sufferer, to follow in his steps. Jesus set the example for suffering. Even Job didn't do it flawlessly, but Jesus did. What credit is it when we sin and are beaten for it and we endure? But if we're doing good, we're suffering for it. See, he tells us. We're going to be doing good and we're still going to be suffering. But that's what we've been called to because Jesus suffered so that we'll follow in his steps. Well, that's number one. That, that's the, the example of suffering that Jesus gives us and that Peter calls us to. That's the first stage. He says he's exhorting us to follow Jesus' example. But now the, now the example becomes fleshed out. Number two, verses 22 to 23, we're going to see Jesus' example embodied for us. Number two, Jesus' example is embodied for us. Peter wants to make sure we don't miss the example, so he fleshes it out in his perfect example. And, and verse 22 is almost a direct quote from Isaiah 53, 9. Isaiah 53, 9 says, He had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. 
Almost the exact same thing Peter says here. In Jesus' life and ministry, he never did or said anything other than perfect love and obedience to God and perfect love to others. He never sinned in deed or word or, for that matter, thought or emotion. Never did or said or thought anything wrong. Never told a lie, but even more than that, he only ever spoke the truth in love. That's amazing to think about an entire life lived that way. Truth only ever came out of his mouth in love. We might be able to trick some people, you know, by showing up on Sunday and acting holy and looking holy. And maybe people at work will think that we're, you know, pretty good people. But eventually our tongue will betray us, doesn't it? You know, we'll, we'll gossip, we'll brag, you know, pride will come out, something. You can't tame the tongue, James says, right? But even Jesus' tongue was tamed. He was perfect in everything he did and said. Even more amazing than that, he carried all of that through his suffering, through his humiliation, while he was being smacked, punched, spit on, scourged, mocked, even nails being pounded through his hands and feet. He never sinned. They reviled him, it says. Revile is what we would today call verbal abuse, or maybe um, more contemporary, more fashionable, verbal trauma. Trauma is a word that's thrown around a lot, right? This is verbal trauma. That's what reviling is. It's highly insulting language that they hurled at Jesus. Some of the language, we, we don't even want to repeat what they said to Jesus. It was slanderous. It was personal. It was profane and offensive. And when that happened to him, he didn't do it back, Right? He didn't return like for like. He didn't fight fire with fire. He didn't stand up for himself. How dare you talk to me that way? I'm the God of the universe, right? That's our natural inclination, fight back. Hit him back, right? They mocked him for forgiving sins. They mocked him for claiming to be equal with God as his son. They mocked him for healing on the Sabbath. They mocked him for his healings as if they came from Satan himself. They mocked and they mocked and they reviled the truth of his majesty as the king of kings. They mocked him. But not one time did he say or even think anything against them in a sinful way. It's mind-boggling. Instead, what was he doing? He he was praying for them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's, It's amazing what Jesus did. How? He was truly a human being as well as being truly God, but so how could he do that? How how could he endure such unjust suffering? Did he just stuff his feelings all inside, right? That's what we want to do. I'll I'll just get over it. I'll just get past it. I'll, I'll work really hard. I'll just stuff it all inside and get over it. No, we see him in the garden. He's really genuinely expressing his anxiety, his suffering, his pain in the garden, his reluctance to be destroyed, right? We see that but he yielded to his Father's will. Instead, does he go the contemporary route? Does he express his feelings? Does he vent his anger and take it out on something, you know, just get it all out? No, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, right? So Jesus didn't go that route either. He didn't stuff it all inside, and he didn't just express it and vent it all over the place. He poured it out to his Father. Verse 23 says, He entrusted himself to God, the one who judges justly. As we've seen, God is going to right all wrongs in the future. God's going to take care of all the people that are reviling and persecuting and causing sorrow and troubles. In the meantime, we trust in Him. This word himself here, entrusted himself, the word himself isn't in the original. Jesus entrusted to the one who judges justly. What did He entrust? Everything. He entrusted himself, 
But he entrusted the circumstances. He entrusted the wrongs that were being done. He, he entrusted everything to his father, the circumstances, the vengeance, the exi- his own existence, <laughs> everything. It's too hard for us in the middle of problems and troubles and conflict to judge rightly. Jesus could have done it, but he was setting us the example, the perfect example. I'm going to just trust my father. Those who revile us are wrong, but God will judge. And either they're going to be punished forever, or they're going to be brought to repentance to, forget, to be forgiven, and they're going to be with us in glory. So Jesus trusted his father through it. But notice, brother and sister, Jesus completely entrusted himself and everything to his father, including his own well-being. What did the perfect heavenly father ask him to do? Die. He trusted his father. His father said, you still have to suffer, you still need to die. He trusted his father not to get him out of it all, but to take care of him ultimately. To to take care of him and glorify him after the worst kinds of suffering. That's Philippians 2, right? After all that Jesus went through, he was exalted. He's given the name above all names because he suffered more than all sufferers. Peter says he never threatened either. He never threatened them. I can't imagine how hard that must have been. You know, how dare you talk to me like that? How dare you do that to me? You know, what would, I might be saying, I'll get you for this, <laughs> right? I'll get you next time. I can, he could do anything he wanted to do. He's allowing ordinary, mere human beings to treat him shamefully, to harm him, to kill him. It had to be a temptation to, to just, not, you know, not even to flick a finger and they fall over, but just speak a word <laughs> and they fall down. Now, it's valid to speak truth to people, to let them know, brother, sister, Mr., Mrs., Ms., you know, son, daughter, if you don't accept the gospel, you are subject to God's wrath. But we don't threaten people with that, right? We don't threaten people, you know, you're treating me badly, but watch out because one day God's going to get you. <laughs> we don't threaten, we don't, we, we don't um, get back at people for the way that they're treated, and we don't look forward to God getting back at them. Paul says in Romans It's the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience that are meant to appeal to people. It's His kindness that leads us to repentance. And it's our hard hearts that prevent it. But threatening people, (laughs) you know, God's going to get you. God's going to send you to hell. You know, God's going to come and get you one day. That's not going to break through their heart. Jesus had valid threats. I mean, He could have said that during the, right? You're you're doing all this to me, but, you know, one of these days you're going to find out. He never threatened. He never, he never went at him. You remember what, what Jesus told Peter in the garden in Matthew 26? You know, they're in the garden, and, and Jesus is being arrested, and Peter pulls his sword out and starts swinging, and he, and he cuts an ear off of the, the high priest's ear, right? Jesus says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? That's something like 60,000 angels. You know, I could just say the word, and 60,000 angels here just knock them all over. And, you know, He said that to Peter to help him understand that his feeble little act of swordsmanship isn't wanted or needed, but he never said that to those who were persecuting him or trying him unjustly or crucifying him. You know, don't you think I could call down angels to destroy you right now? He never threatened. What was his perfect embodiment, this perfect example, what did it look like? Do you remember there in the garden when we went through Mark, in Mark chapter 14, 
Right before he was arrested, he knew what was coming. He was suffering the internal side, the turmoil and the anguish and the sorrow. How did he endure? How did he make it through that? When, while he was mindful of God enduring unjust punishment from man. You remember in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 14, he turned to his disciples, other believers. He turned to his closest friends who were believers and, and they, were the, they were supposed to be there to support him. He turned to God in prayer. He turned to his God, the Father, in truth. And then he turned to complete his mission. He, he turned to what God had given him. He turned to what God had, had provided for him to get through and to endure. And, and the same things that he's given to us to help us endure. Jesus provided a perfect example. And we've seen his perfect example exhorted for us and embodied for us. And that's really good. That's really helpful that Peter has given that to us. It's helpful to know what God wants for us and what He has for us in store. It's even more beneficial to see it actually done perfectly. But how are we going to be able to follow this example? I mean, in all of that suffering, He was perfect. He never sinned, you know, in word or deed. We, we looked at that. How are we going to be able to do this? We're not perfect. We don't have the ability to follow His perfect example. How do we do it? Where would the power come from to do it? That's number three. That's what Peter points us to, number three. In verses 24 and 25, Jesus' example is empowered in us. He, he empowers us in verses 24 to 25. This is how it becomes possible for us. It's not by trying harder. It's not by picking ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and trying harder. I'm going to do better next time. You know, Lord, I let you down this time, but I'll, I got it next time. It's only possible when he's empowered us because of what Jesus has done for us and what he's doing for us now. Verse 24 refers to Jesus' example of suffering all the way to the tree. But in verse 24, there's a drastic change that happens. And we may not pick it up, but when Peter says that Jesus bore our sins in his own body and he died on the cross on that tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness... When Peter says that by his wounds we have been healed, the example has stopped. And no longer is Peter holding up the example of Jesus as the one who bears sins. Jesus is the only one who ever could bear sins. Now he has switched from Jesus' example to the life-giving sacrificial atonement of Jesus for us. Yes, the perfect example of Jesus it reached all the way to the cross, even to the death, but we cannot follow his footsteps to bearing other people's sins and healing them and giving them life through our death. This is where Peter switches to show us how we can have any ability or any power at all to live for righteousness. How can we go from sheep straying away from God to living for righteousness? How can that happen? It's because of Jesus' work of his life, his death, and his resurrection. The language here again refers explicitly to Isaiah 53. Isaiah says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. We thought he was worthless. We thought he was beaten up by God because of wrongs that he had done, but he was being beaten because of our wrongs. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This sounds like First Peter here, but this is Isaiah. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, Peter shortens it up a little bit, but he uses enough of the same language to make it clear that he's talking about Jesus' perfect sacrifice for us. 
Jesus died because he was paying the price for your sin, for my sin. He took away our punishment for eternity. He made peace between us and God the Father. God the Father made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But he did that so that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. That's why he bore our sins. That's why we can't follow his example because he's already done it for us. Our sins deserved God's wrath, and that's all we could do was sin and expect his wrath. That's all we could do. But when Jesus took our sin, he paid the penalty. He didn't leave us with a blank slate and said, okay, start over again (laughs) on your own power. Try to do it all by yourself again. You're going to try to do better this time. No, he exchanged our sin with his righteousness. He gave us his perfection. So now we exist before God positionally as perfect as Jesus was. That's how God sees us positionally. (laughs) It's an amazing truth. But now we live our lives to righteousness rather than sin because that's what Jesus accomplished. By his wounds we've been healed. He didn't die so that we would keep going on sinning. And live to sin, he died so that we would stop sinning. We would die to sin and live to righteousness. We've been healed by his wounds. Healed means uh, it's a complete change. To die to sin is a sudden death. It's a complete and utter change. We stop living for sin, what sin wants, what sin wants to do in us. We die to it immediately and fully and we live to righteousness. That's what Jesus accomplishes, righteousness and and godliness and holiness to what God wants, what he desires, what he requires. Yes, we live a new life eternally with God because of Jesus' work, but we begin now to live a different life because of Jesus' work, that life of holiness and righteousness. When he was wounded, we were healed, and healed is cured. It's set right. It's corrected. We're made to be what we were meant to be now. We're set right and made whole. And it's a past tense thing. We have been healed. By his wounds, we've been set right and made whole. He saved us by not saving himself. Someone said it this way, just uh, a strange, he said, quote, a new and strange method of healing. The doctor suffered the cost and the sick received the healing, end quote. That's only possible because of Jesus' sacrifice for us, what he did for us. He enabled this, and now he empowers it. He empowers this life in us because of what he's done. More than that, it's, it's what results from his death and his resurrection, especially his resurrection. Now, Peter doesn't explicitly state the resurrection, but he must be alive now because after he died on the tree, now he's our shepherd and overseer. He's alive now. He had to be alive. He has to be alive now. Verse 25, the shepherd and overseer of our souls. That, that's who we've come to now. That's who has healed us and made us whole. You remember Psalm 23? Who is the shepherd? It's God. God the Father is the shepherd in Psalm 23. Ezekiel 34 you have in your notes to see God taking on the role of shepherd for his people. But here in 1 Peter and in Revelation chapter 7, Jesus is the shepherd. Jesus is now our shepherd caring for us. John 10, he is the good shepherd. In Hebrews 13, he is the great shepherd shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd who's, he's the one who, who guides us, who guards us, who keeps us, keeps his sheep. He protects us, he feeds us and waters us and, and cares for the sheep. The shepherd is the ceaseless, vigilant one, the one with self-sacrificing love that 
you know, a, a person, a human being giving his life for animals. That's the shepherd, and that's who Jesus was and is, the, the, the perfect God giving his life for people <laughs> and suffering perfectly. He's the overseer. The word overseer is the episkopos, the, the, the super looker, the overlooker. <laughs> He's the one who's always watching, always caring, always guarding and loving the sheep. Not just for our safety, but also for our welfare. Peter says we were wandering around. Isaiah 53 says we were wandering around like sheep, just destined for destruction. We inevitably bringing what was going to happen. We, just, we were going to fall. We were going to suffer, and it was just not going to matter. We were going to go for more suffering. <laughs> but we have turned to the shepherd, the overseer of our souls. We're saved in him. This, this is who set the perfect example for us. This is the one who lived that life perfectly for us. His death and resurrection are what he has done for us. His shepherding, his overseeing are what he does for us now. That's what empowers us. That's what enables us. The presence of our resurrected suffering Savior who no longer suffers but is glorified. And one day when our suffering is over, we will be glorified with him. We have that joy, we have that hope in the middle of suffering. When we turn to him, the word returned there is better turned, turn around, <laughs> turn completely towards. We turn to him. That's what we needed to do to come to know him, and that's what we need to do continually. We, we cannot do this on our own. The suffering is real. The, the pain that we're going to go through is real. The struggles that we have are real. So is our Savior, who has done it perfectly for us, who will lead us through it, he'll shepherd us, he'll oversee us, and he'll bring us through to the end, to the glory and the joy and the hope that we have forever. Our application from this, what, what do we take from here? None of this will matter to us if we don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. If, he, if he's just this person who's a good example, if that's all he is as a good example, it's not going to matter. He was our redeemer before he was our example. He, he saves us. He, he, he rescues us. He changes us completely from the straying sheep into children of God who love him and follow him and trust him even as we go through difficulty, even as we go through the worst things, the hardest times, the deepest suffering. None of it will matter if we don't follow, if we don't know him as Lord and Savior. If you're here this morning and you don't know him as Lord and Savior, you just know him as a nice teacher, a good moral person, whatever, please come talk to us. One of the pastors, go to the information counter. We'd love to spend some time with you and talk with you, lead you through the gospel, the good news of Christ, who is God. He is Lord. And he saves souls. If that's true of us, for our application, the first thing we need to do is learn Jesus' example. <laughs> we can't follow the example if we don't know what it is. We need to learn his example. S study it. Learn from other people what, what they've learned of Jesus and his example. Do we know what he went through? Do we know how he went through it? Do we know how he was able to go through all of it? We can learn from him. Next, follow his example from your heart. First thing, we get our minds in check because we learn his example. The next thing we do is we let that penetrate into our heart and we begin to follow that example. That, that's why he suffered. 
That's why he gave us that perfect example, so that we would follow his example. Finally, help others follow his example. Help others. That's why he's given us one another. You know, when you, when you come to church, don't, don't come and say, everything's fine, everything's great, I'm fine, I'm wonderful, right? When it's not, we can fall back on one another. That's why we've been given koinonia fellowship in our koinonia groups, in our, in our church, our church family. That's why we're a family. Job asked, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive disaster? Or the word is evil, trouble. You know, can we, can we only take good from God and never the bad? No. God has given us grace. He's given us strength. He's given us salvation. He gives us troubles. He's called us to that so that we'll follow Jesus' example. That's part of why we can rejoice in all of this suffering. That's why we can have joy and hope and peace in all that suffering because we know that Jesus endured and we know that we're following his example and it's glorifying our God. We pray for God to be glorified. That's part of how he's glorified. When we, his people, submit and follow and endure as Jesus endured. Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, he suffered more than we can ever understand or realize. God, he went through harder times than we know. God, many of us are going through harder times than the people around us know. Lord, we suffer in many areas and in many ways. God, some of those things have been brought on by, our, by ourselves. We pray, God, that you would help us through those, that you would teach us the lessons that you would have for us, Lord, that we'd not bring trouble on ourselves. Lord, Jesus said sufficient for the day is his own trouble. There's enough trouble in the day without us bringing trouble ourselves. I pray, God, that you would teach us how to live for you, that we'd not bring trouble on ourselves. God, when trouble does come, when you bring it to us, Father, we know that you are a good Father and that you are a caring, loving Father, and you're perfectly bringing what we perfectly need to make us perfectly like Jesus. We pray, God, that you would enable us and empower us to, to suffer as Jesus suffered. Lord, when, when we're suffering, that we're, that we're rejoicing, that we're being hope-filled, that we're being grace-filled, Lord, that you're, you're strengthening and, and helping us to endure. Father, when we're not suffering, God, I pray that we'd be rejoicing, but Lord, that we'd be helping those who are suffering, that we would be there for one another. God, that we would be full of the hope and the joy of, of your presence. God, we thank you that Jesus suffered perfectly. Lord, we pray that if we are called to suffer greatly, that we will, even if we can't suffer perfectly, we'll suffer for your glory. God, we praise you. We thank you that this is true for us. We thank you, God, that you've revealed this to us. We thank you that this is what the world will see and the world will wonder how we can go through anything and still have joy. Lord, I pray that people would see us, that they would see our good works, and they would glorify you, that they would be convicted, that they would be, that they'd be able to see their sin, and that they would cry out to you to save them in Jesus. Lord, we pray that that would be real in our life every day, that that would be true of us, that we'd be living that way for your glory. We praise you for Jesus. We thank you for him. We exalt him and lift him up in his name. Amen.